my name is Gianni Russo, a.k.a. Carlo, the infamous son-in-law from The Godfather. I'm now known as the Hollywood Godfather, and this is my story. Walking with a limp like, will I ever run? Once again, or is this it? Am I forever done? Living in the hospital was never fun. Some people were cool, but not everyone. Welcome, everybody. It's time for another Hollywood Godfather podcast. Awesome. With a very informative messages to so many friends. And, uh, well, let's get into it. Julia, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much. How are you? Good. Will you let our audience know what the agenda is today? <laughs> Most definitely. So today we will be speaking about a notorious underboss of the Genovese crime family, the cousin of Frank Costello, the godfather of Frank Sinatra, born February 1894 in southern Italy, who then moved to New Jersey with his family, Willie Moretti. Thank you. Uh, but first, before we get to the illustrious uh, Willie Moretti, we have some people that we have to remember. And we're going to start off with a friend of the show, uh, Pat Cooper, uh, born Pasquale Caputo. Pat Cooper uh, was, until the day he died, a uh, very famous comedian. He uh, made his bones, so to speak, on the Ed Sullivan show. And he's he was uh, famous and did his act almost till the very end. And he just recently passed away about a month ago. Uh, so Johnny, uh, you knew him. Well, he was on the show, and he was very good. Oh yeah, was on the show. On the show no, I, I had a great experience with him early on. And uh, I used to my house in Las Vegas on the Country Club. I had a townhouse, and um, every Monday night I had a party, and it got to be everybody found out about it. So, uh, and you had to be on the list, and I didn't get involved. You had to go to the guard gate if you're on the list. You come in. If not, I don't care who you are. So. He's tried Pat Cooper so many times to come. So what he did, he came in with the caterers <laughs> and he told them that he was the bartender and they let him in, gave him a coat. I'm upstairs. I normally let the party go for a half hour and get drunk. And then we roll the cameras. So I come down and the bar is hilarious. And I, who's this? I walk over. It's Pat Cooper tending bar. I said, what are you doing? He says, what do you think I'm doing? I'm making drinks. I said, but how did you get in? I came with the caterers because <laughs> I knew he wasn't on the list. But that's just to show you the humor. This guy was totally insane. Totally. Yeah, you, and we had him on the show. It's got to be two years, right, Gianni? Two oh, years my ago? God. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he was 92 or 93 at the time. Still sharp. Oh, my God. And, uh, he entertained us for an hour. And like I said, he recently passed and we miss him. And of course, uh, getting on to our second friend. Uh, wait, 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 let me let me add something to that. The, I I spoke to Pat once a month, and oh, his okay. wife, and I I had the the privilege of speaking to him a week before he died. You would never think this guy was sick. Thank God he just went to sleep, and that was it. He was done. He told his wife he's done. He went to bed. And he died <laughs> like he pulled a switch. Completely who he is. It's amazing. Well, when it's your time, it's your time. If you have any say over it, good for you. You know, I mean, uh, I guess that's a good way to go. Anyway, moving on to Tony Bennett. Tony Bennett, he, he needs no introduction. Uh, no, uh, Tony Bennett is uh, still being uh, uh, lionized. And he's, uh, he's gone about a week already. But I met him once 
I was fortunate enough to get uh, backstage passes to a concert he gave in Radio City. He appeared in Radio City quite a few times. Now, this had to be in like 1987. And, uh, you know, but getting a backstage pass this is such a big deal because a lot of people get backstage passes. And uh, I guess there must have been about 20 people back there. And uh, I, I didn't know the guy. I mean, I was a fan. That's how, I, that's how I got it. And I pulled some strings, friends I knew in NBC. NBC owns Radio City Music Hall. Uh, anyway, somebody whispered in his ear that there was a, uh, an NYPD lieutenant in the mob here. He stopped everything. I mean, everybody was falling all over me. Just pushed him aside. He said, I'll be right back. And he came over to me, introduced himself like I didn't know who he was. And I introduced myself. And we talked probably for 10 minutes. Uh, uh, Tony Anthony DiBenedetto uh, was, his, was his real name. And uh, born and raised in Astoria. And, uh, and uh, uh, a lot of my childhood, I was raised in Jackson Heights, Queens, which is the next neighboring community. Anyway, we had a lot to talk about. Uh, he was one of the few people ever that really liked police officers. And he told me some stories about uh, growing up and interaction with cops and when he became a celebrity. And it's just a, a very sweet guy. I mean, he, he stood there with me for maybe 10 minutes. Uh, until I'm thinking, I, am I hogging this guy's time? And, you know, but he didn't want to go. He just he just wanted to talk about the old neighborhood and just a nice guy. And if you now ever he's saw just a normal guy, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I was very impressed. I like that that celebrity really never affected him like so many. Never, people. never. And I saw him in in Vegas live. He was doing a lounge act. This was a while ago. And one thing about him, he he didn't do the same thing he did in in Radio City. In Radio City, he had a, a whole orchestra behind him. No, wait, 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 wait a minute. You you caught him in a lounge act? Yes, he was in a lounge act. Why? And, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, it was a, a very intimate room. And I was I was in the front for no, no other reason that I got there early. I didn't grease anybody. And uh, he didn't, like I said, he I was about to say, he didn't do the same thing he did in Radio City where he was backed up by a, an orchestra. I don't know how many pieces he had. Uh, backup singers there. It was, it was a huge thing, like a 90-minute concert. Radio City seats 5,000 people, and it was packed. The lounge, I don't know how many people are there, maybe 100, maybe two. I don't know how much many, many seats. But it's there. funny because, you know, I met him in 1959, I, how about November 8th. In 1959, I was 16, like I met so many celebrities going through the kitchen door of the Copa to bring Carmine some envelopes. And there was Tony Bennett. And I used to listen to him on the radio. And the same thing that happened with Sinatra and so many of the stars, they they look at me, look at Julie Bodell, it's like, who's this guy? He's this kid. And he was very nice to me. He even stopped and said, well, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize uh, Costello had a boy. And he thought yeah. I was Costello's boy. <laughs> I, I straightened it out. And it's funny because his fame got so you know huge, as you know. He stopped playing the Copa. I saw him there the last time. I was 27, 11 years later, because the, the room was too small. You know, most people think the Copa was a big place. It wasn't. It sounded like maybe 180 jammed. But, you know, he went into arenas because he can call for it and get the money for it. But um, And then I did Jack Welsh's Christmas party. Years later, I, mean, I, could, I think 2010. And again, he was still humble. And I thought I made a big deal because Jack Welsh's wife used to come to the Rainbow Room all the time when I had my band up there on Fridays. And she said, I want you to do our Christmas party. I said, great. 
And she gave me the date. And she said, what would you want? I want your band. And I gave her a number. And she said, I didn't give her a number, actually. I said, just pay me what you want. I just want to do it. And I did. And I'm up there rehearsing, getting a sound check. Here comes Tony Bennett with his piano plays. Johnny, we're going to use your rhythm section. We're going to do one or two tunes for Jack. I said, whatever you want. So then he sits down. Here comes David. I mean, uh, Seinfeld comes up. And he said, Johnny, I just need your drummer to do slapsticks and all that. I said, wait a minute, you guys are all working here? They said, yeah. I found out they got 250000 I got 25000 I got the tax on that. For the <laughs> show, and I was there all night. <laughs> what surprised me, and uh, now that you said you were surprised, he, he, did, he did a lounge act. He probably owed somebody a favor because he did his show. I mean, he was Tony Bennett, and his voice was you know, spectacular. But Oh, my God, yeah. There was no banter with the audience. There was no pause between songs. There was uh, no, no no speaking. He just went through one song after another until he was finished. It took about an hour, maybe an hour and a quarter. Thanked everybody and walked off the stage. So what you're saying, you know, I mean, this Tony Bennett, he doesn't do lounge acts. No, uh, that's why when you told that me night, that. He, I think he probably owed somebody a favor and did it, but he did it. He just did the show and he took off. But he, he just sang, hey, what are we there for? But to hear him sing, you know. So, I mean, every, wow. everybody's happy, but he didn't, there was no interaction with the audience at all. He just did his thing and he took off. That's amazing. Yeah. So it was probably some kind of a debt that, you know, he was doing somebody a favor or something, but anyway, so anyway, we saved a very important individual for last while we're giving tributes and uh, we're going to give it over to you, Johnny, because you were this guy's best friend. Well, yeah. And as you know, um, um, the sixth family, we dedicated the book to Anthony Federici, Tony Federici who was a close friend of mine for many, many years. He passed. Today is his 83rd birthday. That's why it's so memorable to me. And I, I prayed this morning with him, believe it or not. And uh, that I mean, the last chapter that we, with the zip, I don't want to give it away, but you got to read. Is it the last or next to last? No, it's the next to last. Next to last. Uh -huh. That chapter is riveting, riveting. And I was somewhat there because it's yeah. a novel. <laughs> well, I tell you, I, I knew Tony just from going to, to his restaurants, the uh, Parkside and in, uh, in Corona, the, the best, I mean, the best. And uh, we, we would go there practically every Thursday night. It was also Google night. That's right. Uh, and uh, uh, so I captured his character based on what I knew. I mean, he sit down, talk to us, and nice guy, but I, oh, I didn't know him that well. Guy. But anyway, uh, Tony appears in the Sixth Family, but we renamed him yeah. for reasons you will know when you read the book. Yeah, uh, we, we don't want to give it away, but uh, he, he was quite a guy. Had a, a a very very good reputation in uh, in the area in in, in the neighborhood and generous cool. generous to so many people. Very especially generous. that neighborhood. Hello. So uh, if we had something to toast with, we would. Uh, happy birthday. Happy birthday, Tony, in heaven. Wherever, wherever you I, mean, I don't know if he's in heaven or in heaven. I don't know. I got to think about that a minute. Well, we know, we, we know. I like the guy. But yeah, <laughs> great heaven. He was 83 today. God bless. Anyway. Now, Julian, what are you thinking about all these accolades? Do you know any of these people we just spoke about? Tony Bennett, definitely. Um, I've seen quite a few videos of his performances and stuff, especially like his later performances in the last couple years. But... Yeah, 
Well, yeah, he crossed over to your generation, thanks to his yeah. son, Danny. Danny collaborated with Lady Gaga and so many other people with him. Yeah. But then he yeah, deserved he, it. Yeah, he, was, he did the right thing. You know, his career was starting to wane. And as all careers do, I don't care how talented you are. And he, he started on his own to sing, try to sing uh, pop songs on his own. And it was just odd because that wasn't him until his son, as Johnny said, uh, came and took over his career and had him uh, collaborate with uh, with other singers. Uh, we mentioned Lady Gaga, Katie Lang. Oh, there was others. And he was v very good at what he did. And his whole career was resurrected yeah. until his last concert, which was about uh, maybe eight months ago in uh, in Radio City again with uh, with Lady Gaga. Yeah. Tony could say, I mean, he was in the throes of last stage Alzheimer's. And if you haven't seen that, uh, concert. It's on the internet. I must have seen it five times already. He was, he sang, well, he always retained his voice. And he always sounded like he was in his 30s. I mean, the guy had a set of pipes. He was 94 years old. Yeah. He's belting out these songs, but that's all he could do. He had a had a perfect memory for all the lyrics and songs that he ever sang in his life. And well, the thing about it, you know, I, I knew what was going on with him. He had short-term memory which a lot of all-timers people do. Yeah. They have a long-term memory, like Francis Ford Coppola. He could do anything you want long-term. But short-term memory, he won't know what he ate today. But yeah. he'd up and sing. And that's, I have to compliment CBS, and which happens to be um, at a distance. I'm involved with them because of Viacom and CBS and Paramount, Paramount Plus with our, our association with the Godfather, but that tribute they did the other night for him. And they used a lot of the footage from radio city, his last performance. Yeah. I, mean, mm -hmm. I cried. I, I, uh, I, I was saying. you know, you, you can tell the, the, the ultimate performer, uh, and lady Gaga was very well with him. I mean, you can tell she loved the guy. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and then she, she let him go and do his thing. But once he stopped singing, put it this way, the next day, he didn't know he did that concert. I know. Yeah. yeah, that was that's that's the that's the the tragedy of Alzheimer's. But uh, anyway, wherever you are, Tony, uh, uh, Tony, Tony, and Pat, three greats, uh, three great three performers great. in their well, own let's, life. Let's, let's, let's get in to somebody. Get to somebody who's not so great. Uh, well, uh, yeah, another guy. <laughs> yeah, he, he he was infamous. Uh, Guarino Willie Moretti, uh, known as uh, Willie Moretti or Willie Moore. The reason we're talking about this, I mean, he wasn't, you know, that well known at the end of this uh, this hour. He's going to be more well known. Well, I think you know, a guest didn't a guest ask us to talk about him. I think it was a request. Wasn't oh, it? No, it was it was uh, uh, somebody that sent us an email. Yeah, mentioned Willie, and like I said, you know, you keep asking and we'll keep doing it. So we did a lot of research on Willie. Anyway, born in eighteen ninety four. Uh, what what I didn't know and what Gianni didn't know either that uh, he was the cousin of uh, Frank Costello. Yeah, and it's, I didn't know he baptized uh, or, Sinatra. Or Sinatra. Yeah, he was he, he was Sinatra's Sinatra's uh, godson, uh, and also the underboss of the uh, Genovese crime family. But he started like all these guys started. You know, I mean, practically everybody that we talk about uh, that got involved with the mob got involved at an early age, a real early age. You're talking about barely into their teens, some of them when they got involved in, uh, in crime. 
uh, Moretti was born in Southern Italy, came here with his parents. Uh, unlike a lot of other mob guys who were actually born here. But anyway, uh, he born 1894. So in 1913, he gets arrested on an armed robbery charge. So was he 19 years old? He sentenced to one year in, in, in state prison. Now in New York state, if you get convicted of a felony, you have to do at least a year and a day in a state prison. If you do a year or under, that's a misdemeanor conviction and you stay in a local jail. So he did, he did his hard time. He did his year and a day. Uh, I was sentenced to a year. When he go to Sing Sing? Yeah. yeah. And he was released uh, after several months. But just as long as he got sentenced to the year and a day, he didn't have to do the, the entire time. But anyway, any t- after that, he stayed pretty much clear of the law. He was into gambling. From 1933 to 1951, he ran lucrative gambling dens in New Jersey, which was his area of operation. Uh, also in upstate New York. Uh, he also based operations out of several homes he owned, which should you know, be a little uh, familiar to you, G.I., because the home you're living in That's right. was once... <laughs> I'm very familiar. <laughs> was once a wire room. Uh, yeah, and I still have the Alexander Graham Bells to prove it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you moved in. I think you told me you moved into the place. Well, Frank, I still left it to you, but... Yeah, when I, well, I I started staying. It was a, a stormy night, I remember, in December. And he said, you're going downtown. He didn't know where I was going. He thought maybe I was going to my family. I was sleeping in the bakery at McNally. He let me keep staying there. I wasn't going to pay rent if I could sleep there, and I did. Oh. And at that time, well, when, well, I was already working for Costello. I was 13 to, uh, until he died, but I was still sleeping there. I was 13, 14 by that time. And uh, he said, Go to, we never used like the, the street address, go to 61st Street, go there. It always like 223. You would know where that was if you walked from. And so he said, go to 223. You got a key because we weren't standing outside ringing bells at 5,000, 6,000, dropping envelopes off. You get <laughs> the key and go in. Then they had a separate lock when they locked themselves in, but to have access and not be standing in hallways or on the street. And it was basically a, a home. Well, it's right where I live now. It's 2,300 square feet. Yeah. And he turned it into a wire room. And by my bedroom, there was no bed in it. There was 15 writers side by side, three rows of fives, looking at blackboards, not computers, and taking odds all over the world. I That's believe when, when when you and I first got together to, to do the first book, you told me that when you moved in there, there were, there were 47 phones in there. Yeah. Yeah. Just phones, because, you know, they, they were just ringing. Guys keep picking them up. You still have the original phone number. Yep, I do, yeah, too. That, that, that's something else, man. That's, and that's, that's, you know, it's so funny, because I have it connected. I want to keep it. I'll never give it up. It's a Plaza Plaza 1 number, Plaza 5, rather. And uh, when it rings, now that I have a smart TV, it's very spooky. Yeah, yeah. It says Frank Costello on it. Oh, man. <laughs> Willie Moretti. Okay, like like this is something that you and I didn't know, particularly uh, you, because you were so close to Frank Sinatra. He was uh, Frank Sinatra's godfather, uh, and he 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 stayed close to Frank, obviously, because that's the thing in in, in, in an Italian family to be asked to be a godfather is an honor. You're responsible for the child's religious upbringing, and it, it it extends beyond that. 
any problems that that uh, occur during the kid's lifetime, even when he becomes an adult, if he's still around, he comes to you. But do, it, do, do my research. You know, when, when you told me this, I didn't know. But Dolly was the barmaid at the Hoboken Bar. Yeah, this is and he, he was picking up numbers there, and doing, yeah. you, you worked at it there a lot. And something else I found because that Hoboken Bar is famous now. Marlon Brando hung out there. Because when they were shooting on the waterfront, they were shooting in Jersey facing the skyline because yeah. there's no way to shoot on the waterfront and get the skyline. Yeah. And of course. I, I had to look up the footage, and that's the only way I could have got it. And yeah. you got to know Dolly. Well, Dolly, for those of you who don't know, is uh, Frank's mom. But she uh, must have used Willie to be his godfather. <laughs> well, I, I, Dolly. You know, between, well, she wielded a lot of weight. She was a powerful woman. But Oh, my God, yeah. Uh, 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 Sinatra starts to come into his own, and uh, he signs a recording contract with band leader Tommy Dorsey. For those of you who don't, don't know the power of the bands back then, big bands were like pop music is now, what rap music is now. Big bands were 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 where it was at and to be signed by a big band when i say big band i mean like a 26 piece orchestra if not more and and these people you know this band toured and they were yeah. extremely popular there was nobody the bands there was anybody more popular than the big bands so to get signed with the biggest of the big who was tommy dorsey his brother jimmy dorsey also had a band anyway this was the early 1940s and he hits it big uh he did a show uh, what's What's the venue in Brooklyn? In Frank. Brooklyn. Yeah, that's where he did like thirteen shows a day. I don't know. I mean, he was in, he was at uh, in New York Paramount. Okay, this was another way. He did, anyway, Before he becomes that? extremely famous. He wants out of his contract because everybody's beating down his door, uh, uh, Frank's door. They, they they want him. They want him in movies. They want him here. They want him there. And he has signed a a, a, a contract that he couldn't get out of. So there's a story. Uh, it's part of folklore, whether it's true or not. I, I tend to think it's true. Willie Moretti, as his godfather, did his job because Frank had a problem. And he went to Tommy Dorsey and he said, uh, I want you to let Frank out of his contract. And Tommy Dorsey, who, by the way, had a very bad reputation. This guy was not a nice person. Nobody no. liked him. Well, he was a powerful guy, like you said, very well. Still, you know, you, you could be powerful and you could be humble, but it, he was. He just hated everybody and everybody hated him. But anyway, uh, Willie said, we want you to let him out of the contract. And uh, Tommy Dorsey just laughed at him. Uh, you don't do that. <laughs> you know, so as the story goes, uh, uh, Willie took a gun and shoved it down uh, Tommy Dorsey's throat, threatened to kill him if he didn't release Dorsey from, uh, Frank Sinatra from his band. And he did. And the rest well, of then, his You know, that's where Mario Puzo got the line. See, yeah. Mario Puzo, when he wrote the, green, uh, the screenplay for The Godfather, he used a lot of Dons and mixed them up. Like the olive oil guy was Joe Pafacci. Yeah. You know, and, and Costello was the guy who had the, you know, the politicians in his pocket. But th that was when he said either your signature's on the contract or your brains. What do you want? That's That was the yeah, line. Well <laughs> the scene, the, the scene in the in the, the Godfather, to make it more theatrical, had uh, the uh, the Frank Sinatra character, uh, right. played by uh, Al Martino, uh, to be to, uh, he was unable to get out of a uh, out of a contract with this Hollywood guy who wasn't using him. So instead of uh, somebody going and shoving a, a gun down his throat, 
they go to Hollywood and they uh, chop off the Hollywood mogul's horse's head, which is obviously more cinematic. Uh, well, obviously, yeah. Uh, that's the same. That's right, the yeah, same. I mean, it was very dramatic, I would say. Yeah, well, that's the same scene. <laughs> you know? I mean, that, that's, that's the same concept. Yeah. So just like we did in the uh, in the Sixth Family, and trust me, I'm not comparing the Godfather to the Sixth Family, but we it was a similar concept. We took real life incidents and turned it into fiction. Uh, and I got the idea, obviously, from the Godfather. And, yeah, that uh, works. And I used it what, what a great, what a great model. <laughs> yeah, well, I tell you, I, you know, somebody has to has to break through. And until Mario Puzo came along and did that fact and fiction thing, nobody else did it. Right. And uh, so he was the first. And I said, "Well, why Here don't we? We, go. we got one out and three to go." Yeah, you know. So Gianni and I had this, had the idea at the same time. Why don't we do it? So the six family mixes uh, fact and fiction, and we use a lot of things that you recognize, not a lot, but some things that you will recognize. Anyway, uh, uh, Bully Moretti becomes friends with Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, who had just teamed up and were coming into their own, like Frank Sinatra did. But they became the 500 Club, Skinny Dunn. Skinny yeah, I mean, they, they, they started that. off in New Jersey, which was uh, Willie's uh, area. And they became fast friends. You know, there was a lot of intermingling between celebrities and and, and, and gangsters, which still goes on. Not as much. Well, but, more so with that, you know, I, I was I was questioned when I went for my gaming license. And they said to me, why do you know so many mobsters? I said, well, they own all the nightclubs. <laughs> yeah, they're there. And I, I mean, either I'm performing in there or I'm going to them. But, mm -hmm. uh, uh Willie Moretti's daughter gets married in New Jersey, Fort Lee, where else? In 1947, and performing there were Martin and Lewis, Sinatra and comedian uh, Milton Berle. So you can tell Willie had uh, extensive contacts and was highly respected. Because for these people to perform all at once at the, in the same venue for a wedding, mm -hmm. it's virtually unheard of. And I, I would think that they weren't paid. This was a favor that was returned. This was, this was respect <laughs> given to a gangster's daughter. So you don't exactly. ask for money. Yep. Uh, so Willie gets into the uh, into the mainstream when he testifies in front of the Kefauver Committee, which was in uh, 1950. Uh, televisions were just coming into their own. There were only three stations: ABC, CBS, and NBC. That was it. Uh, and it went off. They, uh, television went off the air at 10, 11 o'clock at night. What you saw was a test pattern. So if you wanted to watch something, you had to watch something on one of those. Uh, uh, three stations. The Kefauver committees were the first, one of the first things broadcast live. And the other one was uh, Queen Elizabeth's coronation, things like that. It had to be huge. The, the you know, world. You know, note there, they were, they were investigating the Genovese crime family as one of the families. And that's when Costello got notoriety. Yeah, well, everybody there, everybody that testified took the fifth or, 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 or Talk to their lawyers, and uh, 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 Costello famously made that demand, where uh, you don't put cameras on my face, which they did the first day, and uh, the, the, the committee heard about it. He says, "No more. You want to hear me? You can hear me, but have the camera only on my hands." But he was the only one that got that 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 record. That uh, I know. It just goes to show you what Congress thought of him. They gave him the respect to do that. But anyway, right. everybody uh, uh, stands on the Fifth Amendment. Against self-incrimination, they're not going to testify except Willie Moretti. 
he decided that he was on stage and he was going to have some fun. So they, uh, they, uh, they asked him, uh, one of the questions was, how long have you been a member of the mafia? And, uh, and he said, and this is a quote, what do you mean? Like, do I carry a membership card that says mafia on it? And everybody looks at him and they realize they're in for a treat and everybody cracks up. Then he was asked how, uh, uh, how he operated politically. The theory being that to operate in organized crime, you had to have some politicians in your pocket. Right. So they asked him, how do you operate politically? And he said, I don't operate uh, politically. If I did, I'd be a congressman. More laughs. This was the kind of guy William Moretti is. Everybody liked the guy. Uh, the, the senators laughed. The, uh, uh, the spectators laughed. But he got sick. Uh, he had the Al Capone disease. He had uh, stage four. Yeah. Yeah. Al Capone had it and died at a young age. Al Capone died at 47 years old. Everybody seems to think he was an old man at 47. Stage four syphilis cannot be cured. You can catch it in the first two and possibly three stages. Uh, but after the first stage, I did some research on this. The first stage is a rash. You can get anywhere on your body, but it goes away. And people think, well, it went away by itself and they forget about it. And penicillin was just discovered or invented uh, around this time when syphilis was running rampant. So Al Capone got it, probably got his rash, went away, didn't pay any attention to it. And the rest of the stages are hidden. Until you get to the fourth stage, which starts to affect your mind. And this is what happened with, with Al Capone. But fortunately for him, he was out of the game by then. He owned an island off Miami and he didn't want to go anywhere. Nobody wanted to be seen with him. And he just faded away. Moretti is still operating. And they were afraid by they, I mean, the commission was afraid that he'd, uh, as they put it, he'd get diarrhea of the mouth and just start talking to us. One of the symptoms are you just babble. Yeah. And you can say anything. And unwittingly, he could talk and get a lot of people in trouble. Even though, I mean, he couldn't be called as a witness, but no. uh, what he said could lead investigators down a path which could get some of these people in trouble. So uh, it's interesting you should say that to me because we had a conversation. I, I must have been like 16 to 17 at that time because that's when uh, all the stuff was going on with the Kennedys. And uh, Costello brought up the fact that one of the hardest things he had to be a part of was justify the hit on Willie Moretti. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, at that at this point, before we get into Willie's death, I think we should hear a word from our sponsor. Okay. We'll be right back. And we know where you live. Remember that. So come back. This is Patrick Piccarelli, co-host of the Hollywood Godfather podcast. I'm also the president of Condo Security and Investigations, a full-time investigative and security firm established in 1988. We are located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with worldwide affiliates. Our business paradigm is simple, to provide the most professional services possible while maintaining an ethical standard and client satisfaction. Our areas of expertise include criminal and civil investigations, asset searches, surveillance, executive protection, question documents, background investigations, computer forensics, polygraph, and many other services. Our staff consists of former law enforcement professionals, with hundreds of years of combined experience. Your initial consultation is free. Visit our website, www.condorprivateeye.com or call 
1-800-396-2808. Thank you. All right, we're back. All right. Well, all good things must come to an end. And Willie had quite the life. But as Johnny said uh, before the commercial, uh, people were afraid he was losing his mind. And since he was, uh, a, uh, Willie was a made guy and he was uh, an underboss, there had to be a meeting of the minds. The commission gets together and reluctantly, uh, they said he's got to go. So on the memorable night, afternoon, actually, uh, October 4th, 1951, he's with four other men. And I tell you, if, if you got to get hit, you get hit in a place named Joe's Elbow Room. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like, I don't know if you ever saw uh, Rodney Dangerfield do his thing where he would say where he started when he was young, you know, Rocco's Knuckle Room. You know, right. uh, that's how he started out in comedy. He always said it's in New Jersey. But this was Joe's Elbow Room. It's in uh, Cliffside Park. And uh, he was there with uh, with four friends and some people come in. It was a setup. Oh, they shoot. No. They shoot him four times in the face. Something I didn't know was respect. That's a sign of respect. I'd rather somebody shake my hand. <laughs> oh, I know. That was an old. That's, a, that's an old. I mean, that goes way back to Locosa Nostra in Sicily. Uh, uh, Junior, they have to kill you because of. A decision and they respect you they only shoot you in the face yeah if they reluctantly have to kill you so junior you were yeah. about to say something no i was just gonna say why why is that a sign of respect that seems very random well well it's got to be some kind of symbolism uh to show something i mean if you're going to kill somebody generally a, a mafia hit uh the person who's going to get killed doesn't know he's about to get killed doesn't know when he gets killed gets a couple mm -hmm. of shots in the back of the head and that's the end but Julie, uh, Julie, there, there are there are some really I, I I unfortunately witnessed the most gruesome killing I ever saw in my life was with the Mafio brothers up in Providence, Rhode Island, and mm -hmm. talk about and it's and it's called Umorta Disgraziada, which is the worst way to die. Disgrace. Yep. And what they did, they two different brothers. They dragged them through the streets alive until they died. Oh. Then they put them in front of their, their mother's house. And let me clean this up. They cut their penises off and put it in their mouth. Hmm. Put them in front of their mother's house. That's a remorse disgrazia. They have a whole category of oh. how to kill people and what oh, for yeah. what reason and the yeah. honor you should get. <laughs> what kind of a um, message are you trying to show? And apparently these guys piss somebody off. Uh, oh my God, did they, they ever? Yeah, yeah. Raymond, <laughs> Raymond Petriak is really pissed off. <laughs> uh, you know, to answer Julia's question, you know, it's it's pure speculation of why does that you know shots to the face indicate respect? And the only thing that I can think of is that when you die, you get to look at your killers in the face. Okay. I never of course, getting shot in the back of the head without having that's not an honorable way to die. And mm. if you want if, if you want to be a, a a you know take your death like a man, look death in the face and take it like a man, and that's why you get shot in the face because they make it quick. Yeah. So the face, the head, you know, uh, that's the only thing that, that, that I could figure. Anyway, the killers were identified. Uh you know, a lot of people think that uh, these uh, uh, mafia hits always go unsolved. It's not the case. A lot of these people, years down the line, get caught if somebody rats them out. But anyway, the the uh, the, the shooters were Ant Antonio Caponegro and uh, Joseph Pepe Lacalci. 
uh, were the killers. And that, of course, the four people that were there having lunch with Willie said, ah, I didn't see anything. I don't know. I turned around and he's on the floor. He's dead. Oh, my God. And, you know, The odd thing about this was Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis were scheduled to eat lunch with Willie that day. Whoa. In the mm-hmm. restaurant. And uh, uh, Jerry Lewis contracts the mumps. Now, people say, what's the mumps? I mean, back then it was a big disease. Now nobody gets yeah. it. I think it, nobody's had the mumps. Neither than the mumps, everybody. Yeah, you got, you got vaccinated and that was the end of it. They eradicated the mumps. Back then it was pretty common. Jerry Lewis gets the mumps and he, did, he didn't call him and he just forgot about it. He was sick and I guess Dean called and just forgot about it. But had they have been there, who knows what would have happened because, uh, yeah. you know, the, the four guys sitting at the table know enough to keep their mouths shut. But now you got two celebrities. Yeah, but they weren't able to name the guys, so that that's all I could say. We still, saw. You know, it's one oh, of yeah, these no, I mean, I believe me, I mean, it's uh, <laughs> I hate to, every time we talk about something, it relates to my life. It's like when I got told Barry Schlotnick I had stomach poison, I could be on the dais for Joe Colombo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, you don't know, it's one of these things. Well, they're probably not going to say anything, but what the hell, take them out anyway. You know, just to be on the safe side, you know. Yeah. Anyway, uh, William Moretti's funeral was conducted in a church, Corpus Christi in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. And why is this special? Because a lot of these made guys with reputations uh, aren't afforded a Catholic burial. He was. Uh, There were 5,000 mourners. He must have donated a lot of money to the church. And and like I said, he was was very well liked, you know, and... uh, And the Monsignor made a lot of money from him. Uh, the wing uh, on the uh, Monsignor's house. <laughs> he wanted a new steeple or whatever, you know, and he, he got it. But uh, so ended William Moretti's life. But he still t- uh, talked about in mob circles. He's not a bad guy. I mean, it's just that he was. Oh, he was really well liked. But yeah. like you said, you know, the, um, obviously, if they didn't have the keep of the commission, then nobody would know he'd blabber in his mouth. And then it's just layers of everything that. Uh, yeah, you, you can't take Why a chance. Yeah, it's, it must be something though to kill, to kill your friend. I mean, it's I I, I go out with, with my friend and uh, you know kill a bottle of scotch, but I mean to to, to, to shoot somebody, man. That's, yeah, hello. Well, that's one oh. of the things early on. You know, when I was hanging around certain clubs, and you hear there the the oath of the Omorta. I mean, what a how that's one of the things you, you may be called on to do. And I said, how did you are you that Walked that you can do that, you may be even I, a family member. You have to be thinking of people that you know and were your friends, uh, in that life. And if you ever got made, you know, if if if, and right. you were called upon to, to kill, like, uh, like say, tough Tony, one of your best friends, how, how do you do that? But if you don't I, I do can't. it, no, hello, you're you dead. next. Oh, yeah, yeah, you go. <laughs> yeah. so because no, they told you, and then I, you know, about it. But how do you, what a choice and what that's something to live with. On that happy note, as we wish Willie uh, to rest in peace, <laughs> uh, Julia, you have some listener emails for us. Yes, I do. So this first one is from Chuck and it says, your name was mentioned on an organized crime podcast. Who's I was- name? Pardon? Oh, your name, Patrick. Sorry. I'm <laughs> <Yeah, yeah, yeah. laughs> <Not> Chinese. <laughs> um Sorry, yes. Um, I was listening to regarding Spanish Raymond Marquez. How do you know him? 
Yeah, I was told, uh, I, I had made a comment uh, on an organized crime podcast about a month ago, I guess it was. And it, it, it got out that I knew him. Spanish Raymond Marquez, to give a little background, was uh, the king of numbers in Sp- what was known as Spanish Harlem. Spanish Harlem, yeah. Which was a misnomer because it was also Italian Harlem, too. And, uh, but, well, he was uh, working for the Genovese. Everybody knew. Yeah, well, he, yeah. he was he, he was cutting them in. Yeah, the, the, the Genovese got uh, 5%. And you say 5%, that's nothing. But this guy was raking in millions. Uh, and you know, you sell uh, numbers uh, to the local population. These people are working class or poor, and they're spending twenty-five cents, fifty cents. You can bet as little as a nickel. Yes, twenty-seven dollars back you get for a nickel. Yeah, and you say, how are they making money? Volume. Hello. <laughs> millions and millions of dollars. So I mean, he was the king. Nobody touched him. Uh, he got along with everybody, and he was extremely wealthy. Fast forward to 1970-something, and I forgot what year it was. I'm in a high-end steakhouse, jazz slash jazz joint, uh, on West 72nd Street. Johnny, you may know it. Mrs. J's Sacred Cow. Yeah, how many you know, Well, that was my... Uh, I, I, was running, uh, I was running cases out of there. Uh, I was doing PI work. Wasn't supposed to because I was still a cop. Uh, and you can't be a police officer in the NYPD and the licensed private investigator at the same time. But I was doing both. And uh, uh, Mrs. J, I mean, the only thing I can compare it to, if you ever saw the old Peter Gunn series, uh, Peter Gunn would hang out in a waterfront jazz place called Mothers. And uh, it's, it's uh, still on, by the way, if you, you guys get uh, BTV, Peter Gunn is on late at night. They run two episodes once a week. But that's what she was like. I mean, she would answer the phone like it was somebody's office. Also, there was various lines on the phone. And uh, she would take my calls. And what a, what a nice woman. What a nice place. A high-end state place. Very expensive place. The waiters and the waitresses sang. I'm setting the atmosphere here. Uh, Spanish Raymond was uh, uh, a, a regular there. And I didn't know this guy. I was at the bar. Most of the time, I didn't eat there because I couldn't afford the place. Uh, I'm sitting at the bar. And there's a payphone. If you remember what a payphone is, <laughs> I mean, there's no payphones in New York anymore. Yeah, phone booth. <laughs> it's on the wall, and I mean, it's it's hammered to the wall. You can't accidentally uh, brush it, knock it off the wall. It wasn't on a hook. I oh mean, wow! It's, it's in the wall, and he and he was a very low key guy. He wasn't a big guy. I mean, everybody knew who he was. He was you know, very gregarious. He talked to anybody, but I never talked to the guy. He's talking on the phone. He's right next to me. And I hear him raise his voice, but just a little. All of a sudden, he says some kind of an epithet, drops the receiver, grabs a hold of the phone, and rips it off the wall. I mean, I don't think Mike Tyson could do that. His, his worst, uh, he just got so pissed. He rips the phone off the wall. The music stops. There was a lot of music there. Everybody stops eating. Hello. And I was the closest to him. And I didn't know what to say. So I said, what happened? You got a wrong number? <laughs> are you kidding me I, I, knowing you're human you probably did yeah that's what i said what am i gonna say i mean i'm standing right next to the guy i don't want to lock him up i mean you know it's, it's criminal mischief i'm an off-duty cop people are looking at me so he starts laughing anyway uh it ended very quietly he whips out a whole lot of bills and he replaced it had a couple of drinks so i knew the guy so we talked we sat we talked and a couple of times after he'd come into the cow i figured he'd be banned but you don't ban raymond from oh. any place 
And we would sit at the bar and talk. The wise guys came in there, but mostly it was celebrities and jazz people. In 1987, I get a call from his son, David, I believe his name was, who was an attorney who had only one client, his father. <laughs> and he said, uh, I don't know if you remember my father. I don't know how the hell he got my phone number, but they did. And uh, Mrs. Jays was closed by that time. And uh, he said, my father wants his memoirs written. So oh. normally I, I, I write this stuff over the phone. Like Gianni and I wrote his book over the phone. And we didn't meet for years. And, you know, but that's what I told him. I said, well, have him call me. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 no. He said, we'll pay you first class seat, everything, come, you know, come in. And we met, got, got me a, a nice hotel room. We met in Keene's Steakhouse, which is in Midtown Manhattan. If, if you've never been, by the way, it's, uh, it doesn't get the respect it deserves. You know, he's talking about organized crime figures and getting respect. Keene's Steakhouse is probably the best steakhouse in New York, and I've been to the mall. You ever been there, Gianni? No. Yeah. My point exactly. Not, not too many people even know it exists, but it's been around 100 years. Oh, anyway, you know, I think everybody knows Peter Lugas. Everybody knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but but I think this is like Thirty Seventh Street or Thirty Eighth Street. I forget where it is. Nice, you know, it's a, like a real steakhouse, dark wood. Sitting down there, and uh, they came with a manuscript. Uh, oh, Spanish Raymond and his son, and we're sitting and talking, and he he remembered me, and we're talking. He said, "Yeah, you're writing books now," and uh, uh, yada yada yada. Long story short. Uh, I said, yeah, okay, I'd love to do it. And they had all notes in there, like a big stack. And I said, well, this isn't going to be bad. Uh, I said, well, it's a 50-50 split. Everybody stops eating. <laughs> Raymond stops eating. The sun stops. And uh, he said, well, no, we were thinking a little different. So, well, I'm open to negotiation. Their offer was, and it was etched. 20%. 90-10. Wow. Trust me, I wasn't getting the 90. I know that. <laughs> so, so I, you know, it's just a business meeting and I'm, I'm not going to get up and walk out, which is what I felt like doing, but I did the, to show my, you know, proper respect. And, and I'm addressing the father, not the son. I didn't like the guys when I sat down, but uh, Raymond was always a gentleman. And uh, we was, I said, well, I'm going to, you know, have to turn that down. I said, 50-50, I'll go 60-40, but that's it. And so the father looks at the son, and the son says to me, you know, my, my father's very sick with cancer. And I just saw oh, Raymond, I'm sorry to hear that. He said, you know, they, they want to get the book out before, you know, he's got bladder cancer. Bladder cancer, if you don't catch it in time, like any cancer, but particularly bladder cancer, pancreatic yeah. cancer, kidney cancer, it's, it's not good. And uh, I said, I, it's, I really can't do that. Uh, and Raymond understood. And uh, uh, long story short, they never got anybody to write at, at that fee. Uh, but I'm trying. I'm starting to think this was a scam because he was under investigation. That he had already beat a couple of cases. He did some time back in the '70s, but not much gambling. You don't get much time. Uh, he wanted to avoid uh, uh, prison by saying that he had terminal cancer. Now he did have cancer, and uh, uh, and he said. Uh, he, he was caught on, on a tap talking about organized crime and uh, gambling. And his excuse was, well, I want somebody, uh, I'm looking to write a memoir. I'm oh, looking that's what writer I mean. yeah. to write it. And we're talking about the book. 
And he beat an indictment by that, by saying that. So I'm thinking they just cobbled this thing together and said, well, we, we, you know, we have to make it real. Otherwise, they could just re- reconvene the grand jury. So I'm, I'm sure we were being watched that night. But, you know, thinking back, I didn't think so. Uh, and they did ask other writers, when you start talking 90, 10, no one's going to pay attention to you. Yeah. Long story short, Raymond's terminal cancer, he still got it. <laughs> He's 93. Oh, wow. And still kicking. So when I heard he was still alive from this podcast, that's why I, I had to put my two cents in. Uh, I, I, I'm thinking this, this had to be a ruse to get him out of the indictment. They didn't want a book at all. But he's still alive. And you and you had a keynote there, too. His son was a lawyer. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> yeah. So as he's, he's alive. He's 93, living in Florida. He's fine. God bless. Next question. Sorry to take so long, but it was a long story. So the next one is from Jimmy for everyone. He says, I'm glad you guys discussed the corruption going on with unions telling creators how to cast a movie. I see this stuff behind the scenes at a university, and I can tell you that it is morally and intellectually bankrupt and creates resentment. Luckily, last week, the Supreme Court ruled admitting students by race is unconstitutional, which I kind of already knew. I think that these movie unions, are what they are doing is unconstitutional too. I actually do not watch new movies because Hollywood has an ideology problem the last three years and consistently destroys movies. Where are the independent filmmakers outside of Hollywood? Can you go that route? I think Ronald Emmerich made Midway in 2019 outside of Hollywood because they did not want to support a patriotic movie about a key World War II naval battle. Well, the problem is if you go against the union, then you're not going to get any screens or networks to buy it. So you can't, you know, you got to do the union. Yeah, you're right. Uh, also, with with their rules now about uh, percentages of uh, disenfranchised oh, groups that have to be in in, in film, I, I I went to the movies a couple of days ago. I I saw arguably the best movie I've ever seen. Well, it's in the top two. Godfather's one at Oppenheimer. Mm, oh, Oppenheimer is amazing. You have a chance. Uh, who's ever listening to see that movie? Uh, mm. Christopher Nolan, the producer, director, broke ground with some of the stuff he did in editing, the acting. Robert Downey Jr., if you can recognize him. I know, you can. If he doesn't win a supporting uh, Academy Award for this. And then I'm thinking, hold it. This picture can't even be nominated according to these guidelines. Exactly. What are they going to do about that unless they've got people? Uh, they're, going to go, they're going to go win everything. They're going to go. I know really what they're doing. They're going to go to all the farm press. They're going to go to the Cannes Film Festival. They're going to saturate it. Look at what they did. I mean, they came out, like you pointed out, number two over Tom Cruise's movie. <laughs> Forget about it. Everybody's waiting for that movie. This this movie is going to be looked upon as one of the best movies ever made. I mean, that's yeah. how impressed I was. Right. The acting was just superb. I mean, and it was three hours. Mm. Uh, Julia, what did you think of it? Oh, I, honestly, I, I went in there not knowing too much because I like going into movies having a little bit of like a clean slate, not really. But I honestly, the cast alone was just such a star-studded cast and everything was so intentional. And I was just sitting, I 
I'd just come back from Six Flags. I was really exhausted. I was sitting there on the edge of my seat the entire way through the movie. I just, I, yeah, I don't think a movie has been made like that for years. Like it was yeah. just amazing. Like yeah, everything. Yeah, Christopher Nolan did stuff with a camera I have never seen before. Oh, yeah. I mean, Julia, did you notice like at the end uh, where uh, Oppenheimer is uh, is trying to get his uh, secret clearance extended? Yeah. When he was speaking, the room was vibrating. Yeah. You notice that? Yeah. I mean, it's just some odd stuff. And the bomb, for those of you who don't know, uh, 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 Robert Oppen- J. Robert Oppenheimer was the father of the atom bomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that, like a half hour sequence just with the bomb going off. I mean, I was floored. Johnny, you have to see the movie, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting a copy of it. Yeah, yeah, it was incredible, honestly. Okay, we have time for one more question. Yes, so the next one, this one's funny. Um, this is from Robert for everyone. It says, hi, team. What an outstanding choice on your new co-host. What a talent and what looks. <laughs> and how smart is this girl? Just loved Julia. That's your father, right? Yep, it is. Number <laughs> <laughs> one fan. <laughs> He says, if "You said oh, Robert. I had a funny idea." Yeah, that's what I, did. <laughs> that's I was. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, he says. Well, on that note, it's a great note to go out on your father. And what else were you saying? I'm sorry, you had something else. Yes, he has. He has a couple suggestions here. He says, "I have a suggestion on a podcast interview." Well, true to be precise. Several years ago, my wife and I spent an evening at Harry's Bar in Beverly Hills where we were introduced to Frank Stallone. We spent a couple of hours talking with Frank about the entertainment industry, Grammy, Golden Globe nomination artists, and whatnot, his life and his amazing and extensive knowledge of the boxing world, both present and past in Australia, the UK and America. Frank had us enthusiastically entertained with his stories for hours and interviews with him on these subjects would just be magic. The other person to interview would be his big brother, Sylvester. Love to hear about his new series, The Tulsa King, and about his new documentary on Netflix. Both would be outstanding interviews. So, Gianni, hopefully you can pull some strings and get one or two of them on. I can get both of them on if I want. (laughs) I know Frank's the love forever. I knew their mother. Hello. (laughs) Well, you know, that's, that's a very good idea. Yeah. But I, I feel sorry for Frank Stallone. He's been in his brother's shadows all his life, man. Frank never got the break. Yeah. Still, I, I don't think we have much luck with his brother, but I think we can get Frank, maybe. You think you can yeah. uh, run that off? Okay. Anyway, good show, folks. Great show. Thank you. And we'll be back next week. Keep the cards and letters coming. That's what keeps the show going. Julia, thank you. Thank you. Pat, have a great Thank weekend, everybody. everyone. Thank you, everybody. Right. Bye. The sixth family right. is waiting for you. There you it is. All right. On that happy note, have a good night, everybody. Good night. And that was that. But I'll be back. Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. Want to ask us a question for the mailbag? We love hearing from our fans, so submit your questions online at hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com or you can give us a call at 646-776-3038 and leave a message. 
Contact us anytime with your questions about past or future shows, your favorite celebrity, or anything you'd like to know. And who knows, your question may even make it on the air. Remember to follow us on Instagram and on Facebook at Hollywood Godfather and at Real Johnny Russo. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review with your podcast provider or your video streaming service. We'll be back next week with another exciting show and who knows who we may have on the show. If you don't want to miss out on an episode, remember to subscribe. Until next time. My life's like scenes out of a movie. I'm the Hollywood Godfather, truly. I got stories with them all. You know, celebrities, world leaders, icons. Who knows what's next for me? I'll never get too old to have a little fun. Come on, I'm Gianni Russo. A genuine one of a kind. What a ride it's been, this life of mine. And I ain't done yet. I'll be back until next time. And that was that.